Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Bible study. Uh, this week we're going to be going through the second half of chapter 19 of Matthew and all of chapter 20. You can actually look at chapter 19 and 20 and pair them together and there's eight separate sections that we're going to go through and all eight have uh, one sort of theme and that theme uh, is a specific Bible verse that we're going to see Jesus repeat twice and he actually inverts it uh, the second time that he says it. And that Bible verse is those who are first will be last and some who are last will be first. That's the idea of it anyways. The first will be last and the last will be first. When you hear that, it, it begs this question, well, what does that mean? And so that's what we're going to look at today is what does that mean? And to simply answer it really quick, submission, uh, letting go. Those who let go and put Jesus and put others first and truly take on the idea of being a servant to others and make themselves last, they will end up, because of that, becoming first. So I'll go in and explain all of this. Uh, but first, before I get into that and we open up the Bible, why don't you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time that we have to open up your Bible and study your word. Lord, I pray right now that whatever stresses, whatever um, mundane things, whatever complicated things, whatever is going on in the, the listener and the viewer's life right now, that you would give them this time of peace and, and that all of those troubles uh, would just sort of be in the background and go away so that they can take this time and truly concentrate this time on you and on your word and on learning more about what it means to um, put others first and to um, put yourself last. We love you, Lord. Please speak through me. Please uh, soften the hearts of those people who are listening and their minds and teach us something new today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Now, the first chunk of the eight uh, is dealing with marriage. And uh, I spent the entire talk last week talking about marriage and well over an hour. I think we were an hour and 15 minutes or hour and 13 minutes or something like that. So it's a little bit of a longer one. But if you didn't see that, I highly suggest you go back and watch it. Um, it's a phenomenal study to look at uh, what does God call the Christian man and a Christian woman to do and to be in a successful Christian marriage. In looking at this theme across 19 and 20 of the first will be last and the last will be first, marriage, we saw uh, the husband called to be like Christ and to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That model that we see is literally the husband is called to die for his wife, figuratively speaking, but you could argue for literally speaking. And in that, we're talking about first, last, last, first. So if the husband is the head of the household, the best thing that that husband can do is put himself as the lowest level on that household of being a servant to everyone in his household. Uh, his wife, his children, putting all of their cares, all of their needs before his own and be a servant for that household. Put Jesus first, wife second, kids third, and himself fourth. And then the wife was called to submit to God and to submit to her husband as in the same way that she submits to God. And in that way, you have the husband being the head of the household, but it's inverted because a good husband is actually going to die to himself and go last. So that's that example of the first, last, and last first in, in submission. That uh, We saw that as well. Uh, Ephesians, was it 5.21, I think is what it was, is, is that we are all, could, uh, all called to submit one to another. This next chunk that we're going to look at is Matthew 19, uh, starting in verse 13 and going through 15 in which we see um, little children be blessed by Jesus. So why don't you follow along with me? Matthew 19, 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. 
But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he had placed his hands on them. He went on from there. We actually looked at this a few weeks ago. We looked at the fact that uh, a very similar thing happened. And Jesus actually gave a talk on kids. And he brought a kid right up in front of the disciples and said, um, unless you become like one of these, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He was talking about being childlike. And we, we did a whole talk on that, on what it means to have a childlike faith, uh, a simple and humble and honest belief in God. That is what it means to have a childlike faith. But what Jesus is talking about here, uh, what Matthew, the author here, is, is referencing, is that a common practice that parents would do is they would bring their children to their rabbi to have them be blessed. I akin this very similar to parent-child dedications uh, that most Christian churches do. It's the same idea, is that you take your child uh, and present them to the rabbi, and the rabbi would bless them. Uh, and this implies that the kids are a little bit older than the, the three-month-old or one-month-old parent-child dedications that many churches do now, uh, or infant baptism, um, depending on what your perspective is on that. But that's the same idea. And so you have these parents that see Jesus is coming through, and at this time, you have to understand, we're nearly, three, we're, we're nearly at the completion of Jesus' ministry, the three years that he's been going around this entire region, uh, preaching and performing all these miracles and doing all of these amazing works. He has a following and a reputation. So parents are bringing out their children because some believe, on one hand, clearly this guy is a prophet. If nothing else, he's a prophet. And on the other hand, many do acknowledge and believe that he is, as he said, which is the Messiah, uh, the chosen one, God incarnate. If I had a kid, I would absolutely want to bring my child to be blessed by God. I mean, what an amazing experience to have your child be blessed by Jesus. So the kids are coming to him, and this is an example of the first, last, and last first. In the priority of opinions that matter, where do kids fall in uh, from the disciples' perspective? They're at the very, very bottom. And Jesus is that, that same idea, the first, last, and last first. The kids are at the very bottom. And so Jesus says, no, we suffer the children, is the translation in the King James Version, or in the King James Version. And that, that the idea there is, let them pass, let them come to me. As another side note and a tangent, I think this is a phenomenal uh, testament to the character of Christ. Kids know a phony. They can spot a phony, and they, the character of kids, they, they aren't going to just run up to some weird, crazy, beady-eyed, freaky surfer guy from California, which unfortunately many of the older movies of Jesus kind of depict him that way. I'm a huge fan of the TV series The Chosen, uh, which I think they're going to launch the second season here very soon. The way they depict Christ is phenomenal. And the way that they depict uh, the early church and the interactions between um, Peter and Andrew and James and John uh, is really neat. And Matthew especially. I love the way that they picture Matthew. It gives a humanity to these, these disciples. So I, I highly suggest you look that up. It's The Chosen. Uh, it's actually an app you can download on your phone or your smart TV. Uh, it's free uh, to be able to watch them. I highly suggest that. Wow, that was a tangent. Uh, so continuing on, we now go to... Uh, the rich young ruler. And this is uh, Matthew uh, 19, verse 16, all the way through uh, the end of 1930. Uh, and I say the rich young ruler. My title here in the NIV says the rich in the kingdom of God. But we have three takes on the same story. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this in their gospels. We learn from uh, Luke the idea of uh, this individual is a ruler. Uh, Luke gives uh, that title, Hi Lexi. Are you coming to, to say hello? Just check in. Kenzie is sound asleep. Well, not anymore. Um, I love these guys. I hope that you enjoy them coming and uh, occasionally distracting me. Um, I think Lexi's ready to go home already. It's not time yet. Sorry. Okay. I'm trying to teach here. Okay. So 
the rich young ruler. So you can read uh, Mark's take on this, which is found in Mark 10, 17. And you can take, uh, read Luke's take on this, which is found in Luke 18, 18. And that's where we get the idea that this individual is a ruler. So I'm going to read through this for a bit, and then uh, we'll chat about it. So picking it up on 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. You want to enter life, keep the commandments. I'm going to pause right there and we're going to digest this just a little bit. Okay, first of all, uh, we know that this guy is young, rich, and a ruler of some sort. So I don't know what their definition of young is, but clearly this guy's influential. Um, he's not an old rich guy. He's a young rich guy that has influence. Um, he also clearly has some pride, and you'll see that here in a second because he boasts quite, quite uh, strongly about how amazing of a person he is. So he comes and he asks Jesus this question, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? That's an important thing to note. We have the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's this question of works. The Old Testament is full of salvation by works. You follow the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, uh, and if you do that, then you're righteous, and then you're loved by God. So you have to be perfect, and when you're perfect, you will then receive the righteousness of God. But the reality is, and we know this to be true, that, that you don't receive salvation by works, but it's by faith only. And in fact, um, several individuals that I'll bring up here in just a moment that are in the Old Testament that God specifically says are righteous, these individuals uh, are sinful, but at the same time, they're called righteous. And they were called righteous because they believed God. They had faith in God. Throughout the Bible, that's the one clear thing that gives salvation is belief, belief in God. Where is your heart at when it comes to God? So the Jews of the day believed that salvation was through works. So, And there was a thought, there was a theory that uh, if you did enough good works, uh, you would get eternal life. A lot of people today do have that belief. And that belief is very common where, well, and, and you'll hear it. If you'll ask, well, do you believe in God? Yeah. Do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm generally speaking a good person. I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. So yeah, I think I'll get into heaven. That right there is a works-based salvation. What that person is saying is, is that at the end of all things, when they are judged, their good deeds, the good things that they did, will outweigh the bad things that they did. The problem with that is you're using God's scale of economy on what is good and bad. God's the judge. We are not. So if you compare one to another, yes, there are varying degrees of how good or bad you are. There's always a person that's worse than you, and there's always a person that's quote-unquote better than you. But in God's economy, it's impossible. It's impossible to, to uh, work your way through into heaven. So this guy comes and says, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, uh, why do you ask that? The reason why he says it in that way is, is that th there, there is only one which is good. Who is good? God, Yahweh. God is the only thing that is good. Anything that exists that is good is from the Lord. All good things come from God. So, when this guy asks Jesus, what good thing must I do? Jesus is saying, no, the only thing that's good is God. So then he says, okay. Um, Jesus says, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So enter life meaning enter eternal life, get into heaven, keep the commandments. Now, this is not a statement that Jesus is saying that we are under the commandments. This is not a verse that then implies that we today are still under the old covenant. That is a whole other tangent about the new covenant versus the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is what's called the old covenant which it's that covenant that has the Ten Commandments, which the Jews held to. The new covenant puts away the old. We are not required to keep the Ten Commandments today. That's a very important thing to note, and Jesus is not saying that. He knows this guy's heart, and I've said this before. God wants your heart. He knows what's in your heart, and that is by far the most important thing. So God knows, Jesus knows, 
where this rich young ruler is coming from, and he's challenging him. So he says, okay, keep the commandments. Then this rich young ruler says, okay, well, which ones? Sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead. 18, which ones, he inquired. Jesus then lists them off. He replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept. There's that pride. The young man said, what do I still lack? An important thing to remember, well, let me go through these. For you note takers, murder is the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not commit a murder. Adultery is the seventh. Stealing or theft is the eighth. False testimony is the fifth commandment. So he's listed off four commandments, the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments. Then he adds in from Leviticus 19.18, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so he has four, five, six commandments basically, though the last one is, is two independent ones that are both found in Leviticus 19.18. What did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? That was quite a while ago in our study, but we did cover the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? Do you remember what Jesus said when it comes to murder and when it comes to adultery? Jesus said, you have heard it said not to murder. But I say to you that if you say to your brother, Raka, you are guilty of murder. What does that mean? Raka is, is a term that, that they still can't translate exactly today, but it's an insult. It's, it's, it's far worse than calling someone an idiot. So if you say to your brother, you moron, but in a far worse term, Jesus is saying that's the same thing as murder in God's economy. And what about adultery? What about adultery? What does Jesus say then? He says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's the equivalent of adultery. And the response then is who then can be saved? And that's the point here. Jesus had said that at the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? In God's economy, this guy, he says that he's kept all these things, but that's impossible. It's impossible. There's no question whatsoever that he hasn't done these things, but he says, yes, I have. I've kept all these things. What then shall I do? What do I still lack? Uh, verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The most important thing here is that last one. Come and follow me. That's what Jesus is calling this guy to do. Now, the fact that he asks him to take all that he owns and sell it, why does Jesus ask him to do that? Is it because rich people can't enter heaven and that anybody who is wealthy needs to sell everything that they have and give it to the poor because God doesn't like wealthy people? No, that's not it. And we're going to get into that here in just a second. We're going to talk about can a rich person enter heaven? So let's see. Let's continue on verse 22. When the young man heard this, heard what? Jesus state, make the statement, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. You will then have treasure in heaven. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus is saying, you got a choice. You can pick heaven, following me, which gives you heaven, or your wealth. Right now, you are putting your wealth before me. And you can't do that. You cannot put anything before God and enter eternal life. You can't get into heaven if anything comes before God. God's got to be your number one. You got to fully submit. That's what God is saying. So the young man leaves. Um, verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In my class that I'm in right now, um, interpreting the Bible too, um, uh, many of you know I'm going through a, a master's pro program in biblical studies, and we're dealing with poetry and literal versus figurative. Is this picture that Jesus paints here of a camel going through the eye of a needle a literal or a figurative thing? It's obviously a figurative, that's a figure of speech. He is saying that it's, it's preposterous is the idea of it. The camel is the largest animal in that region. 
I think that's why Jesus picked it, is, is that camels were a common thing that you would see, but they're ginormous. They are absolutely huge. And the eye of a needle is likely the smallest hole uh, that Jesus could come up with in the analogy. Uh, and I remember back, this is a total tangent, but I remember back uh, when I was in elementary school, my mom um, was adamant that I learned how to sew. And so I remember what a pain in the butt it was to try to put that little tiny piece of thread. You'd lick it and you try to put it through the needle. It's just like, you try to get it. Um, and I'm actually glad that my mom taught me how to do that because I can sew buttons onto uh, um, my clothing, etc. In fact, I did have one wedding, believe it or not, where the veil uh, tore off of the uh, comb uh, piece that was uh, attached to it, and the bride was going nuts, and I happened to have a sewing kit with me, and I did, believe it or not, sew that veil back onto um, the comb holder. And uh, my mother was very pleased at me that I uh, remembered how to do that. So the analogy is accurate. It is trying to picture a camel going through the eye of a needle is a, a preposterous alliteration. And that's what the, the disciples then say. When the disciples heard this, picking up on 25, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So there's a couple things that I want to hit on here real quick. The idea that Jesus says of it's difficult for a rich person to enter heaven, I think is true. I think that that is something that we need to look at. And why is that the case? Um, I shared this story once before. Uh, I went to um, Guatemala. Uh, good grief, that was probably eight or nine years ago now. Yeah, and on a missions trip, I was doing photo and video. We went to the northern section of Guatemala up under the jungle, and it was desolate. It was very desolate. Um, but we got to go and tour some local homes. So we were staying at this orphanage that was also the only school, and all the kids would come to this school. Um, so we, got, we were staying there, and the kids, some of the kids got to take us and show us their homes in the local village. And the thing that amazed me, the kids were so excited to show us their homes. They were so excited. They, they took us around by hand and they were like showing us their homes. And it was, it was amazing. They were proud of their homes. And most of the people on the trip, the, the people that were with me, were just blown away by what they had. I mean, these, these uh, homes that they had were um, scrap metal siding and scrap metal roof. They are just pieces of metal that they got from the dump um, that, ha that, that, that they somehow used wood as a structure. Uh, they're open air, um, they cover from the rain, but um, they're about the size of this uh, carpet here was the size of the average person's home. I'm not kidding, the size of this carpet from this wide angle here, this blue carpet that's here. In this amount of space, you probably have an opening over here and maybe an opening on that side. You'd have uh, one cot here, another cot here, and they might have another home that's, that's another building that's connected with it. Chickens would be coming in and out, and over here on this side, they might have um, a table of sorts, and on that table would be uh, embers. Uh, they'd have a piece of steel, they'd have a little fire going with some embers on it, uh, and then they'd have another piece of steel and that's what they would cook on. And the thing that amazed me and that was really my memory of this was that they had no shame in their house. They really didn't. The other thing that I noticed, none of them had phones. Uh, the communication, they, they, they didn't have phones, they didn't have technology. They knew just their small little world um, and that was that. So fast forward uh, three years ago, I went on a medical missions trip that I spoke about just a couple weeks ago, and we went to Haiti, and it was my second time to Haiti, and uh, Port-au-Prince is a slum, a massive, massive slum. It is amazing. There are hillsides that are just shanty towns, these, these small little cinder block things that, are, that they, they, they build on top of each other. And the thing that was amazing is you're driving through this, um, is that you saw they were in poverty, and yet they all had smartphones. And everyone was sitting there on their smartphones. And I, the joy 
of these people. It was just, I just didn't see it. And why was that? I think it's very obvious. When you don't know that you're poor, you aren't upset about being poor. You might think that you're rich because you have a cow and 10 chickens and you know you have enough food uh, to eat and you're not wondering where your meal comes so obviously you're wealthy until you look and you see and you compare yourself to somebody else. The idea of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven being difficult is because when you of your own volition think that you have everything, you aren't dependent on God and therefore you aren't reliant on God and therefore on a day-to-day -day basis you don't surrender yourself to God and ask and say, God, I need to eat today Please bring me today this, my daily bread. You don't, you don't pray that because we don't have to worry about food. If you think that you are in a tight spot today, if you live in the United States, even if you are on welfare and surviving off of food stamps and, and loans from the government and just making it paycheck to paycheck and barely surviving, you need to understand you are living in the top percentage in the world as far as your possession, as far as your, your health, as far as your education, on, as far as everything. You need to understand that you still have abundance. And when you think that you are doing everything on your own, why need God? You are a self-made man or a self-made woman. Why do you need God? That is the idea of why it's very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I am taking too long on this. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover. Um, so I'm going to continue on. So um, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Okay, so I need to, to make a few comparisons. First of all, the reasons why the Jews were really taken aback is because um, in Jewish culture of that time, for a little historical cultural context, you need to understand the Jews believed that you were blessed or cursed based on uh merit, more or less. So what, what I mean by that is, is that if you were rich, you were rich because you obviously did something good or your forefathers did something good and you are still receiving the blessing from that. So therefore, obviously, the rich are going to get into heaven because they're rich because God loves them and God blessed them. If you are poor or even worse than that, if you are a leper or you are a person who has sickness or is blind or is lame in some way, you obviously are not loved by God. You are cursed by God and therefore you are on the lowest of low. So obviously that person is hated by God and is not going to get into heaven. You need to understand that was their perspective. So the fact that Jesus comes and says, that guy that you think is first into heaven, he's actually last. This is getting back to that first last thing. Just to give you a few names though, just so you understand, I just mentioned earlier that there are individuals in the Old Testament that were considered righteous, that were sinners, but were also at the same time considered righteous and had salvation because they believed God. These are some wealthy, wealthy individuals in the Old Testament that were also called uh, righteous and uh, had salvation because they believed God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, Solomon, these are five individuals that were, Solomon is considered still to this day to be the most wealthy person that ever existed. Bezos still doesn't have the same equivalent of wealth that Solomon had. Um, and so the reason why I want to make this clear is, is that the Jews of that day, in their mind, wealth uh, meant you were getting into heaven. And Jesus, again, flips the cart and says, no, uh, that person that you think is wealthy uh, can't get into the kingdom of heaven because they think they're doing it of their own accord. Sorry if I'm belaboring this, but that's the point that I want you to understand is, is that it's impossible of your own ability to get into heaven through works, but with God, all things are possible. Through Jesus, through surrender, through, through uh, this idea of the first being last and the last being first, we do have that possibility of the wealthy still getting into heaven and the poor getting into heaven. This does not mean that if you are wealthy that you're not going to make it into heaven. It does mean, though, that you have a higher call on your life. We are not all dealt the same hand. That is clear. The Bible makes it clear. And some people 
have to work harder to earn the same amount of money as other people who don't have to work nearly as hard. And the Bible's gonna talk about that. We're gonna see that coming next. So, well, actually not next. We got one more chunk and then we're gonna see that. Um, so the disciples were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So then we get, unfortunately, um, Peter showing um, yet again uh, the wisdom of uh, the, the rock, the disciples. We see their humanity, and, and he's worried about himself. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then is there for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There's important things I want to note here. So what Jesus is saying is saying at the renewal of all things, this is uh, the new heaven, the new earth. Um, this is the this is heaven, right? An important thing to note here. Jesus is clearly saying. We, as humans, will have assignments and tasks in heaven. We'll have responsibilities. And Jesus is saying that the 12 will sit in authority and judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. So we'll have tasks, we'll have responsibility, and there will be a hierarchy in heaven as well. So that's an important thing to note. Now, I, we, there, there is some scripture that supports and explains the rewards you will receive in heaven. There's crowns that we can receive in heaven. Um, but it's still, it's, it's vague and we really don't know that much about it other than the fact that we know the things that you do here on earth will reflect how we live in heaven, our assignments in heaven. And I do believe the, the more you are blessed with here on earth, the greater your responsibility to do with that. The Bible makes it clear that if you are faithful with the small things that God blesses you with, he will bless you with more. And then if you're faithful with that, he'll bless you with more. And with more comes more responsibility. But if you surrender everything to God, he will do a work in you. And I believe that this life is very much... Um, a, a trial, as it were, and how we do in this trial dictates the responsibilities we have in heaven. Continuing on, uh, verse 29, and everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mother and wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. There's that verse that I mentioned before. So what Jesus is saying here is, is that those who sacrifice on earth for the kingdom will receive reward. Those who sacrifice more will receive greater reward. Those who sacrifice less will receive a lesser reward. And then he says this, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And you have a break between chapter 19 and 20. There should not be a break there. It's literally the same thought. He is going to explain this passage, verse 30. He's going to explain with a parable. So now let's get into this parable. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Early in the morning is, uh, the idea is 6 a.m. Went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard to start working. A denarius was the equivalent of a day's wages. And we know that specifically because a Roman soldier's day's wages is one denarius. So it's a very common payment was you do a day's work, you get one denarius. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at noon and at three in the afternoon and did the same thing at about five in the afternoon. He went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. People were paid and given work on a day-to-day -day basis. And at the end of every single day, they were paid. So what's happening here is, is that this, this farmer uh, is looking for workers to do work. And he goes uh, multiple times throughout the day and says, Hey, I got work for you. Come and do work at my fields. Work my vineyard. And they say, Great. 
When evening came, so this is uh, verse 8, chapter 20, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. So this is the, those who were hired at five o'clock, pay them first and then going so forth. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have that right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. There is so much that's packed in here, but this is a parable that Jesus tells us to help shed some light on this idea of the first and last. The Bible talks about the fact that, um, uh, what's the verse? Actually, I think I wrote it down here. Uh, yes, Matthew five forty four. I wrote it down. Um, We spoke on that. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the idea that the sun rises and falls on the righteous and the wicked. The rain falls on those who are righteous and the wicked. Meaning that good times and bad times come to everybody. Not everyone is dealt the same hand in this life. And this analogy that we see of the person who worked from 6 a.m. all the way to likely 6 p.m., a full 12 hours, and received a fair day's wages, but they feel totally cheated because this person who came in and just worked for an hour received the same amount. In life, you are going to see that without question. You are going to see a person who does not deserve to be rich, and yet they are, and they appear to not work at it at all, but yet they are rich. You're also going to see people who have nothing, but yet they work so hard and they achieve great things. At this time, for historical and cultural context, you need to realize it was not possible unless some amazing blessing happened for someone who was born poor to die rich. It's not like the U.S. as it is today and this American dream of a foreigner who is able to come uh, and and do hard work and then be blessed. In fact, I was doing some photography for uh, a restaurant, I might have mentioned this before, where it's the son of the owner, um, an Italian restaurant, phenomenal food. I photographed their whole menu and now they have a whole online presence, which is smart because of the pandemic. But it's the son who's running the restaurant now, and I got to meet the father, and he is Italian through and through, and the son is the firstborn um, in the U.S. The dad came to the U.S. with absolutely nothing, and now the son is inheriting this restaurant and lives a great life, and this restaurant is doing very, very, very well. And so in that father's lifetime, he went from having absolutely nothing to being an influential uh, well-off business owner, and that's the, 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 the beauty of America. That's the beauty of America that I grew up with, but I don't know if that's the beauty of America today. There's this, this uh, belief system going around that if your hand, deck of cards that you were dealt is not the same as everybody else's, then those who were dealt a better hand owe you money, owe you a responsibility to say that they're sorry because of the privilege that they have. And what the Bible is saying here is is that the rain falls on everybody, whether whether you're rich or you're poor, and those who are first have a humongous responsibility because of what they've been blessed with. And those that are last, if you submit and you work hard, you can be blessed and you can better your situation. My argument was this, is this, not to go down some political tangent, but I've worked really, really hard 
for what I have. And what I have, I cherish because I worked really hard for it. If someone said to me, hey, this really, really rich kid was born with a trust fund, and because you weren't born with a trust fund, here's $10,000 of his money because you don't have the same privilege as he does. What does that teach me? That teaches me that I shouldn't work for my money, that I should ask for more handouts for my money, and that 10 grand that I get, which is just a number I pulled out of my hat, that's gonna have little value to me because I didn't work and sweat and, and, and work hard for it. So this tangent, to try to wrap it back around, if you are a CEO or if you want to be a CEO and you want to be the leader of some multinational massive company, you, according to the Bible, need to put yourself last. If you want to be the best leader you can possibly be, and if you want to have all the money you can possibly have, the best way for you to do that is to swallow your pride and to put others before yourself. And when you do that, you will be blessed. If on the other hand, you are born into a horrific situation, you, you never met your father, uh, you had a horrible upbringing, um, you, you, you dropped out of college, and shoot, you never even went to college, you dropped out of high school, and you were dealt this horrific hand. I would argue that God knows where you started and that if you surrender this situation that you have to God and say, I, I surrender this whole thing to you, Lord, and I submit my life to you, God will give you challenges, small ones, and you can build yourself up and be blessed little by little by little. And then when you die and you get into heaven, God's going to look and say, hey, this person who might have seemed to be first did nothing with what they were given, and I hold them to a very high standard. This person who had nothing did very, very great things with what they had. I am going on a tangent. I need to bring it back around so we can wrap this up. I apologize. Wow, okay, so the last will be first and the first will be last. So now uh, we see Jesus predict, predict his death a third time. We're on uh, uh, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. This is leading to Holy Week. This is leading to Jesus' triumphant entry. This is Palm Sunday. We are, this is next week. Um, we're going to see this uh, in Matthew 21. We're going to see um, Jesus enter Jerusalem as a king. Uh, this, the reason why they're headed to Jerusalem, no doubt the disciples are thinking this is for um, uh, Pentecost, uh, the Passover feast. Um, and the festival that goes along with the Passover um, is leading up to this. And so that's why they're headed to Jerusalem. That's why they think. And Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This is the first time that Jesus has been specific of not only how he's going to die by crucifixion, but the fact that it's going to be uh, the Gentiles, the Romans, that are going to physically do it. Only the Romans used crucifixion. This is the first time that Jesus specifically mentions this. This is the third time that Jesus has told the disciples what's coming. And they still don't get it. They, this goes right over their heads. How do I know this? We know this from uh, Luke's account. And I want you to put, leave your finger here uh, and flip over to Luke 18, uh, 31. I've already got it marked so I can flip there fast. But um, Luke 18, 31. So uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke 18, 31. And actually we're going to go to verse 34. Uh, verse 31 through 33 is the exact same story. Um, Jesus explaining to the disciples that they're going up to Jerusalem um, for him to be, uh, to mock him, insult him, spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. And the third day he'll rise again. So it's a slightly different description. But verse 34 is totally unique uh, to Luke's uh, gospel. 
The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what Jesus was talking about. And this will become clear um, when Jesus is uh, apprehended, they go into total turmoil. Um, when he's crucified, they are all, every, all of the followers go into hiding for fear for their lives. Um, they, they, they don't look for Jesus' return three days later. And we'll see that when we get to that. But the picture that Jesus paints here, uh, this is number six of the eight examples. I said that at the beginning of this, that between 19 and 20, there's uh, eight little tiny chunks. This is number six. We got two more. Uh, and, and But all of these deal with first and last. The last will be first and the first will be last. This example that Jesus gives is the same one as uh, um, the next one we're going to hit. Um, Jesus is fully God. Who is higher than God? God is first above everything. And what he's saying here, when he calls himself the son of man, which Jesus called himself that quite often in, in Matthew's gospel, the reason for that is he is relating to our humanity. He is God, but he came down to earth and became the least among us. This is a perfect example. The first became last. The God that created everything that we should all be in service to became a servant of everybody and died for everyone. Do you see how each of these is an example of the first will be last and the last will be first? Continuing on, a mother's request. We're on uh, Matthew 2020. 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, the apostles uh, James and John, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. Jesus just got done saying that he is going to go and be tortured and crucified and three days later uh, come back to life. And the next thing we see is we see James and John's mom come and say, hey, you know that thing that you just said about how the 12 are going to be in the throne room with you? Um, can my sons actually be right next to you in your throne room when you go to heaven, when, in your new kingdom, when you get to your new kingdom? Actually, they're not talking about heaven. The, uh, if you look at the Old Testament, this is a slight tangent, but when you look at the Old Testament, the prophecies of Jesus are both his first coming and his second coming. So the Jews of that day were expecting a Messiah that would come and would, would kick out the Romans and would, Romans and would set up an actual monarchy um, in Jerusalem with him as the head, a new king that would, would overthrow the Romans. So they were looking for a military leader. So Zebedee's wife or James and John's mother are asking, hey, when you get into Jerusalem and you become king and when you're in your throne room and the 12 are in the throne room with you, can my sons kind of be in your left and right with responsibility? Jesus says in verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. She had no idea what she was asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And the idea is, can you go to the cross? Can you bear the suffering that I'm going to have to bear? Can you do all the things that I'm going to do? Do you understand what you are asking? To be at my right and my left is to ask to go through what I am going to go through. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Well, we're going to see that. We're going to see that in Acts, and we're going to see that in the letters. We're going to see James is actually the first of the apostles to be martyred. He does get killed for his faith in the same way that Jesus. So does he drink the cup? Yes, he does. What about John? John gets exiled to the island of Patmos, and that's actually where uh, he has the vision and writes Revelation. And so he does suffer. Uh, and he does, in, in, in a way, drink that cup as well. So Jesus says, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant 
with the two brothers, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples give me hope. And the reason why they give me hope is because Jesus, before this story and after this story, says, I am going to go and die for you for the sins of all mankind. And what do the disciples do? Yeah, but where am I going to be in the throne room? What about me? And then the, the disciples, the other 10 here that, that James and John are trying to vie for position sitting next. No, what about me? What about me? That's why the disciples give me hope. Because these guys are normal, everyday humans. They don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, but they will. They will. So the, the picture that Jesus is saying here, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's that same example that I'm saying over and over again. The first will be last and the last will be first. Now we have Jesus um, healing two blind men. Verse 29, we're getting closer to the end. Hang in there. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them, be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and followed him. The reason why I think this is so significant is in the next verse, uh, when we hit 20, we're going to see Jesus enter Jerusalem. And uh, this begins... Uh, Holy Week. The, in the next eight chapters, we are going to see um, Jesus teach some amazing lessons, but we're also going to see him um, crucified and uh, um, buried, and three days later, he's going to rise. The important thing that I want to take away from this is that the last miracle that he does before entering into Jerusalem is heal two men that are blind. And why is that important? I, I think it's important to remember, Jesus had the power and the ability to heal mankind, to heal our ailments, to heal us. He had the power and the ability to heal himself on the cross. To, he had the power and the ability to actually go through all the torture without feeling any pain, but he didn't. He had the power and the ability to uh, be hung on the cross and not feel that pain. He didn't have to die. He could have chosen to not get apprehended. He could have chosen to actually overthrow the Romans if he wanted to. He could have called down a legion of angels when he was apprehended to kill everybody. And we're going to see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see Jesus actually say, Lord, that this cup would pass from me, but not your will, but my will. Jesus, God, becomes a lowly servant and says, you know what? I'm going to do what I have to do to save mankind. So as, as we wrap up, I hope you realize the, the important takeaway from all of this is, is that the first God became the last for you and for me. And that our salvation is ensured through Christ. We live in an incredibly uh, crazy time right now. I mean, good grief, this past week we saw our commander-in-chief in sight, and I don't want to get into political debate, whatever, I'm just going to state the facts of what happened. We had our president 
have a rally and tell citizens of the United States certain things. And from what he said, they went and charged the Capitol and people died. This has never happened before. This is insane what we are seeing right now. Uh, do we have political stability right now? We are, I don't know how many days from uh, the end of Trump's presidency. Um, it's less than a handful. I think we're at 11 or 12 or less. How confident are you that we're not gonna see some other incident happen? And in fact, I'm filming this right now and before this even airs, there's a probability that something else is gonna happen. I know the Democrats are trying to impeach Trump as fast and as hard as they can, and, and there's absolute turmoil politically. Now let's talk about COVID, this pandemic that we're in. The numbers are higher than they have ever been before. It's spiking like crazy here in Saratoga County where we live right now. The new strain of the virus is going rampant. If you look at the numbers of hospitalizations, if you look since March uh, uh, or since January of last year, over a year, you see this little blip in March and then you see this spike that we're in right now. We are right now in a very, very tumultuous time. If you aren't feeling some despair, uh, I'd be surprised. I'd absolutely be surprised. I don't. And the reason why I don't, and I have to be totally brutally honest with you, I am better now because of COVID than if COVID hadn't happened. I am better now because of the pandemic than had it not happened. Financially, no, I'm not better financially. But by the pandemic happening, my business shut down and, and I realized I was dependent upon God. And that's what we were talking about earlier, that rich man, why it's so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God is because we believe we are self-made. And so therefore our reliance on God is not a daily thing. But when the pandemic hit, I fell to my knees and I have talked to so many Christians that though we can't go and meet in church, they are stronger now in their faith than they have ever been before. I would not be doing this study right now, going through Matthew and spending the time that I am talking to you right now if the pandemic didn't happen. I am closer to God because I'm going through this trial. And the reality is you are either going to be bitter or you are going to get better because of this. You are going to fall on your knees and say, God, I have no control over whether or not Cuomo is going to say tomorrow that everything's shut down. I have no control over whether or not I have a job to go to tomorrow. I'm going to fall at my knees and I am going to praise you because you are in charge and I am not. Or you are going to be bitter and you are going to be angry. You're gonna be angry politically and you are gonna say that we need to overthrow the government or you're gonna be angry politically and you're gonna say we need to throw out this tyrant. You're gonna be angry at every situation that you're in. That's your choice. You can get bitter or you can get better. There's one passage that I wanna reference, actually two of them. Uh, actually, let's turn to there. Uh, I'm almost done. I, I, I just I, I can't let this go. Let me just wrap up. Hang in with it. Hang in there with me. We're gonna go to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I read this the other day, um, and Psalm 46:10 is one of my favorite passages. Um, it's written up on my mirror. Psalm 46:10. Be still and know that I am God. But go back to Psalm 46:1, and actually. All Psalm 46, Let, let's, let's read that. So Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and the foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth's earth melts. I do believe in global warming. The Bible says, says that uh, the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat. It's all going to burn up. We're going to talk about that 
Matthew 24. I'm very excited for that one. We've got, we'll see if I, I do it in four weeks or five or six. We'll see how long it takes me to get through these coming passages because there's a lot of chapters, uh, a lot in the coming chapters. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's God. He will be exalted. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so as I wrap up, here, I'm closing it. I'm closing it now. So now you know we're not going to see any more verses. I am going to quote one more, though. I have to. If you are stressing out right now, I want to remind you of Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. If you have faith in God, if you are a believer, chances are this pandemic has brought you closer to God. I have, I have talked to so many solid believers who say they are closer now to God than they have ever been before, and they are excited. And the reason why they're excited, it's kind of a little, uh, a little kind of crazy, but they're excited because the signs of the times keep pointing to Jesus' second coming and to the rapture. And I'm getting ahead of myself with Matthew 24 when we talk about that. But if you're not getting better and you're getting bitter, I, I, I challenge that. And the reason why I challenge that is because chances are you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. My answer, my question would be, why not? Why not? You have no control. Why are you still trying to pretend that you do? As soon as you give up that driver's seat and you say, God, I surrender. You take the wheel. I'm going to take the passenger seat. In fact, I would say you're better off getting in the back seat or even in the trunk and just surrender your life. So as we wrap up, if you haven't surrendered your life to God, I am going to pray with you right now and give you that opportunity to do so. And if right now you're listening to this and you suddenly have this, this feeling, this knot in your gut, that's the Holy Spirit. Listen to it. What it's saying right now is, oh my gosh, he's going to pray something in just a minute. And if I pray him, I'm going to be one of these Jesus freaks. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to. And yeah, you will be. But as I just uh, read, you'll have peace. You might not get the solution you're looking for. The life of a Christian is a hard one. That's without doubt, it's a hard one. But in turbulent times, you will find joy. And when you have no control, you will have peace because you know the worst thing that can possibly happen is what? You die? And to be apart from the body is to be with God, which is far better. So Romans 10, 9 and 10 make it very clear. What do you need to do to be saved? All God wants is your heart, but he wants it all. He wants you to surrender everything. So I'm going to pray right now and I invite everybody to join me in this prayer. If you are a Christian, pray it again. Uh, there's no reason why you can't pray the prayer of salvation every single time it's presented to you. But if you've never prayed this before, I challenge you to pray it. Surrender. Give up and surrender it to God. And experience the peace and the joy that only comes after you let go. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord, I am broken. I surrender my life to you. Lord, I invite you into my life. Please come and fill me up. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for saving me.
I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, angels in heaven are rejoicing as am I with you. That's very, very exciting. Shoot me an email, dave at davebigler.com. I would love to, to set up a phone call with you and chat about what this means if you have any questions for me. If you'd rather not connect with me, that's totally fine. Connect with somebody. If you know someone is a Christian, reach out to them and, and let them know this prayer that you just prayed and get involved with a church. Continue with this study. Go back, go back all the way to July. Uh, when I last cut my hair, that was actually in July in Nantucket. Leading up to that was the last time I cut my hair. It is getting long. It is freaking long. Uh, but go back and study this study and, and catch up with us. Get into the word, get connected with other believers and daily, daily, hour by hour even, continue to just let go and surrender it to God. And like I quoted from Philippians uh, 6.4, with thanksgiving in your heart, give it to God and he'll give you peace and joy. I think this one probably went over our usual time. I always try to do 50 minutes, but man, when, when I feel it, I just gotta say it. And, and so I appreciate you uh, hanging with me for this. Um, next week, we are going to be uh, going into Matthew 21. I don't know if I'll cover all of Matthew 21. We'll see, but we're gonna see um, God enter Jerusalem uh, on, a, on a donkey. So if you want, do your homework and read ahead. Uh, hang in there, and we'll see what tumultuous thing happens in our political climate in between now and next Wednesday. I love you guys. Hang in there. I'll see you next time.